Welcome to ScrubCast, where we take a closer look at the research happening at Stanford University's Department of Surgery. I'm your host, Rachel Baker. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Dan Azaguri. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure having you here. Dr. Azaguri is an associate professor in the Division of General Surgery and Chief of Minimally Invasive and Bariatric Surgery. I've always thought that was kind of an odd marriage. Why do MIS and bariatric surgery go together? This is just historical. It started with MIS with laparoscopy and it was initially an, a technique that was used by a small group of people. And as it became mainstream, it sort of engulfed these different surgeries or groups of surgeries that includes bariatric surgery, what we call foregut surgery, so gastric and esophageal surgeries, and uh, what we call abdominal wall surgery. So there are these subgroups within MIS. It could be called just MIS, but bariatric has for a long time been a, a pretty large component in terms of uh, surgical volume of an MIS section. Got it. Okay. Well, do you prefer one or the other? A lot of my practice is bariatrics, so I am deeply passionate about it, and it's that's really a lot of my day to day. Um, so I, I will have if I I will have to say bariatrics is my my preference, but I love foregut. I, I love MIS in general, obviously. Well, so it's it's good that you have something to fall back on because now that we have Ozempic, you're <laughs> you're basically out of a job, right? Like... <laughs> I I think it's the contrary. Uh, I think sort of middle long term. Ozempic is actually going to help patients get the help they need. And I think it's a doorway into finally getting obesity to be treated as a medical condition and patients coming to physicians to get it treated rather than trying to deal with it alone at home with advice and potentially Weight Watchers at best. For sure. So I do want to know more about these medications that have become so popular over the last several months, uh, especially since my mom, actually, who's a type 2 diabetic, was just prescribed it. And my incredibly scientific research into the search <laughs> engine known as Google tells me that Ozempic <laughs> is one of a group of drugs called glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists, or GLP-1s. Yes. If you think about how you would design the human body, you would probably put somewhere in your gut, in your stomach, some sort of receptor that would tell your brain, that's it, you know, I'm full. And that's what GLP-1 is, essentially. It's a, it's a gut-based hormone that comes out of your gut when it detects that it has seen enough nutrients and has a series of actions. It stimulates your pancreas to say, hey, we have work to do here. There's there's food around. Let's get going. And then it tells your brain, hey, you can stop filling up the tank. You're no longer hungry. And the interesting part about that that not a lot of people know is that these hormones were actually discovered because of bariatric surgery. The story behind that is when we first started doing uh, Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, which is mm -hmm. one of the most common weight loss operations, what we noticed, and by we is the medical community, unfortunately not me, it was people a lot smarter <laughs> than, that, than me who noticed that people who were type 2 diabetics mm -hmm. would stop being diabetic in a matter of days after the surgery. It's crazy. 
that is crazy. And you obviously haven't had time to lose a very significant amount of weight. In the, right, yeah. You know, those very smart people started looking into why that could be. And that's, that's how GLP-1 was actually discovered. And so the pharma industry obviously looked at that and said, a diabetes drug. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So you can't really do GLP-1 itself. You know, it would last a very short amount of time in your system. So okay. they created these receptor agonists. GLP-1 RAs is the name of these drugs. So okay. they go to the receptor and they tell the receptor as if there were GLP-1 around and they stimulate the receptor cool. and led to a successful diabetes, type 2 diabetes drug. And then that's where the, it goes full circle. <laughs> and they realized, oh, when we give the drug, you, it actually leads to weight loss. Right. Which happens after the gastric bypass, obviously. Yeah. Uh, now we can you know, potentially use it as a weight loss drug. Very cool. Let's say my new year's resolution was to lose 20 pounds. Can I go on a GLP one for, you know, a few months and get back into my bikini bod? You can now you shouldn't, but you can. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, if you want to lose 20 pounds and take the drug, it will work. Now there are a series of reasons why you shouldn't. Okay. Number one is we have an agency called the FDA and their job is to decide when it's safe to use a drug. And so to do that, they measure two things, the risks and the benefits. And so they established a, what's called an indication for use based on those risks and benefits, meaning that the goal is to have enough benefits to outweigh the risks. So all drugs have risks, have side effects. If you're taking it for a, lower benefit, it might not outweigh the risks anymore. Ah. So if you're doing it to get into your bikini, the health benefit from that is questionable at best. (laughs) I'm sure there's some positive psychological (laughs) outcomes, but unlikely to yield very significant health outcomes. You know, your your blood pressure is probably not going to improve. Your diabetes is probably not going to improve if you don't have them to, to start with. So that's the first reason. It's that it has been studied for a certain indication. And that indication is patients who have a BMI that's greater than 30, which is the definition of having obesity, or a BMI greater than 27. And you have health conditions related to that. For example, you have high blood pressure or diabetes or hypercholesterolemia or one of these other medical conditions that is likely related to obesity and therefore is likely to improve when you treat obesity. Right. The second reason is at least at this point in time, if you start a GLP one, you have to be okay with the idea of staying on it for the rest of your life. Oh, doesn't mean that everybody will, but the majority of people who stop the drug regain weight. Got it. And so you have to be okay with the idea that if it works and you're doing great, you might need to stay on it forever to keep mm-hmm. having those benefits. Again, it won't, it won't be the case for everybody, but if you plan to take it for, you know, a couple of months and then stop it abruptly, the chances of, of weight rebound are really significant. 
uh, and you might even regain more weight than you've lost. So I guess that brings us back to how you're still employed, right? You, <laughs> if you're looking for a more permanent solution, then I guess, you know, jabbing yourself with the injection once a week, bariatric surgery is still a great option for these patients. Yes. And so there are a couple of reasons why I think I'm going to stay employed for a while. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I, I still have the job is I'm deeply convinced that our goal is really to treat obesity independently of the mechanisms that we use. Um, mm -hmm. And I heard a talk when I was an, uh, a resident from a uh, foregut surgeon who did uh, anti-reflux surgery uh, for pe people with acid reflux. Mm -hmm. And his entire sort of talk was about the fact that he was the perfect person to treat the condition because he could use all of the techniques that were available for patients. So one of the ways is a drug. It's omeprazole yep. and, and that family of drugs APIs. that a lot of people use. And for some people, it works great. And then there's endoscopic therapies where you go through the mouth and do mm -hmm. endoscopic treatments. And then there's surgical treatments like in this infundoplication yep. where you wrap the stomach to create a valve. And so he was explaining that you know, if you go to your PCP or even a gastroenterologist, they don't offer the full gamut of treatments, but he can tailor the treatment to each patient based on history, their preference, mm -hmm. and all those things. So I think it's the same for, for weight loss. And so when I started as a section chief, one of the first people I hired uh, after hiring a fantastic surgeon, Michaela Escobel. I hired uh, Michelle Hauser mm -hmm. and yes. she is non-surgeon. We hired her into a department of surgery mm -hmm. to really sort of develop our medical weight loss program. And we've been working to create a truly holistic clinic on, on our weight management mm -hmm. side so that when patients come in, they come in saying, I have this medical condition and I'm looking for treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the segue to why I'm still employed is there are a number of reasons why one treatment might not be ideal mm -hmm. or sufficient. So I can give you many examples, but let's start with patients with a higher BMI. So higher weight to start with. Okay. All of these therapies have inherently what we call a plateau. We're designed as a species. What's going to kill us is starvation as a species. Right. We're not designed to fight overeating or overabundance. We're designed to fight starvation and lack of food. Fighting centuries of evolution here. That is not going to go away in a few decades or a century. So what our body's going to do is it's going to fight the weight loss. And at some point the body's going to win and the weight loss is going to stop. And if you start at a weight that is high enough, that weight loss will be great. You'll start feeling better. You'll have improvements in your blood pressure, your, your other medical conditions pretty quickly. You start to see improvements after you lose about 5% of your weight. So wow. you, you don't need to lose a whole lot of weight to start to see health improvements. But at some point you will get to a plateau and there are different ways to break the plateau. We can add drugs, we can do different things. An option is to then go to surgery and that will lead to much more significant weight loss in a sort of a second step to get you where you want to go in terms of weight loss. So that's one 
option. The other option is not everybody tolerates the drugs. Um, there's some side effects. There's a significant cost to them. And mm-hmm. uh, we're actually working on a paper to compare the cost of weight loss surgery versus drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's pretty clear that after a, a non very long amount of time, weight loss surgery is actually more cost effective as a treatment. Makes sense. And for a patient, the out-of-pocket costs, even if it's covered by their insurance, the out-of-pocket mm-hmm. costs separate. Um, and just like we've seen, for example, for omeprazole, patients say, well, yes, it's working, but I don't want to stay on a medication forever. Right. Uh, and I want to get off the medication. And so weight loss surgery is a great tool to be able to solidify the, the weight loss and get off the drugs. So let's talk about some of those side effects and risks because yeah. my mom was reading me the back of this, uh, you know, the box and she's like, um, there's a lot of stuff on here, like nausea and vomiting. And I'm like, it sounds like they're giving you gastroparesis here. Is I like, is that, Yes. doesn't seem like a good idea, but I mean, so this is what we're talking about. The health risk versus benefit. Correct. There are some side effects. Uh, and yes, it's a gut hormone. So it's going to of wreak a little bit of havoc in your gut and mm. the way that your gut reacts is by uh pushing things out one way or another so it's nausea <laughs> vomiting, diarrhea potentially constipation uh so it can be one or the other and those are pretty frequent now most of the time these side effects tend to be temporary and so there's a certain way that these drugs are prescribed like most drugs you'll, you know, for blood pressure, here's a 10 milligram dose and you start at 10 milligrams and that should be it. Here you start at a low dose and you stay on that dose for a month and then you have sort of a, an escalation dose. So it's like the opposite of a steroid taper. Exactly. It's the exact opposite. It's a, it's a reverse taper uh, over <laughs> uh, and you do it a month at a time okay. to be able to go through sort of those side effects in a way that's not too bothersome. And so your body sort of gets used to it. And so the side effects tend to go away. And that's a great segue back to the prior question. Some people will never tolerate the side effects and get off the drugs because it just doesn't, it's too, it's not working it's, yeah. too much. And so that's another reason to consider surgery. But most patients, I will say, have these side effects for a period of time, and then it gets better. And some of them obviously don't have any side effects. I'm like, or very minimal and very short-lived. Got it. All right. Well, so I want to move on to some other topics, but there was one other thing about GLP-1s that came across my desk in the past few months, and that was this new protocol for performing surgery on patients who are taking one of these medications. Yes. What was that all about? So that's the gastroparesis. So because it does essentially have that effect of slowing down your gastric emptying, one of the things that anesthesiologists are worried about is when they intubate you, so when they put a breathing tube, Mm -hmm. there is during that period of time, those few seconds where you're completely relaxed, that your muscles and your airway is no longer able to protect. If something were to come back up from your stomach, it might go into your lungs. And so if your stomach is not emptying quickly and they tell you, well, don't eat or drink anything for 12 hours, but your stomach takes 24 hours to clear things, your stomach might still be still be full of food right? and it might lead to having things go into your lungs, which is obviously a, a, a big issue if you're undergoing surgery. Right. So that is why they, the, these new protocols are in saying, if you are on the GLP-1, 
when you're going to have surgery, stop your GLP-1 agonist um, a week before the surgery. And so okay. um, that's what we do. And it's uh, relatively straightforward. We tell our patients to you know, not do the injection that week prior. So on the show, we ask each of our guests the same two questions. The first one is, who is a surgeon you admire and why? So I think, you know, many of us tend to have these, you know, be influenced by the early encounters in our, in our career. So I think I'm not very different in that. One of the surgeons I truly admire is one of the first surgeons I worked with. As a medical student, I started doing these summer jobs and I worked in the I was cleaning the floor in the uh, in the OR in the on the pediatric uh, surgery side, and that sort of I my passion for surgery and uh, decided to become a pediatric surgeon. And uh, so one of the surgeons I admire is the chief of pediatric surgery, and she was just this incredibly dedicated, one of the most technically skilled surgeons I've ever met. Just fully dedicated to her craft, to the kids and was also extremely humble. All of her achievements were just, it was just, she would just do things and she achieved all these things and she never had to show or brag about anything because she would just, the actions was just speak for themselves. And, you know, she <clears throat> became a doc in the sixties, a surgeon in the seventies, a pediatric surgeon at the time where, you know, I don't know how many female pediatric surgeons there were in the world at that time. She started pediatric transplant in, in Geneva. Uh, so just an, an incredible, incredible surgeon who also did a lot of set up all this program to bring in kids from lower income countries to have more significant surgeries. So just a, somebody who was essentially a visionary, but without sort of the, all the PR that goes around it. So yeah. Uh, Professor Claude Lecoultre is her name. Uh, okay, I'm gonna have to get the spelling for of that <laughs> for the uh, the description. Left a big uh, <laughs> left a big imprint on uh, on me. Fantastic. Well, our second question is: What is the best advice you have received in ten words or less? Easy. Uh, your kids will never read your CV. <laughs> okay. I believe that it's probably uh, a fascinating read. So especially, you know, the Stanford formatted CV that is, you know, 220 pages uh, long. <laughs> Many of us in this field focus a lot on, on our work and our job and our patients and spend a lot of time here. But it's a good reminder to have, you know, what are the things that uh, will truly have an impact on, on your life and who you, mm -hmm. you have an impact on. And being there for one of your kids' events, be it what it may be, they will remember that a lot more than, you know, this extra thing that you did at work uh, that day. So It's good for, to keep perspective. Well, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, before I go, um, I want to ask one last question, and that is, what is next for Dr. Dan Azaguri? What is next? So... What is next? Uh, I think there's some exciting prospects, hopefully, to uh, recruit some people into our section and really... Hiring's always fun. Yes. Our 
fellowship is doing really well. We've expanded the fellowship and I think we're providing fellows a fantastic experience. And so the next focus is really to try to put a bigger emphasis on on our section's research and our ability to have a bigger impact in the field and recruit hopefully some folks to to do that uh, within the section. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really great talking to you today. It was great to be here, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was really a pleasure talking to you. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like Scrubcast, we hope you'll tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.